Navigate the journey to becoming a great lawyer with expert guidance on topics that range from trial skills to corner office management. Here you will learn how to tap into your potential for legal greatness. I'm Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor, ESQ. All right, well, welcome everybody. We've done it, it's part seven. So the title of part seven, It's a Wrap, is to signify that we are wrapping up this seven part series that started uh, seven months ago in January. And it's also how we're gonna wrap up uh, a case. And we're gonna talk about that today, how to wrap up a case. Uh, before we get into it, just a couple of housekeeping things. Uh, the first Michelle will mention is that uh, we're gonna be starting a series called Anatomy of a Trial, a trial skill series. Uh, part one will be on eliminate motions and jury selection. So uh, you can get ready right after Labor Day to kick off your fall. And uh, it's gonna be a multi-part series like this was. And we're gonna go through the details of a trial. So we're talking eliminates, jury selection, opening statements, direct exam, cross-exam, uh, getting things into evidence, objecting, um, closing arguments, all of that. So stay tuned, looking forward to doing that and the registrations are gonna be uh, popping up uh, possibly as early as today for that. The other thing I wanted to just point out to everybody is we had a real successful uh, first episode of the roundtable on the podcast. The roundtable is not CLE credit like this, but it is a forum for all of us to discuss topics and uh, that affect the legal community and uh, sort of strengthen the bonds that I feel we've developed over this series with the plaintiffs, the defense bar, carriers, judges, and alike. Uh, and July 22nd will be the next roundtable. My uh, emails will go out to get registered for that. And we're gonna be talking about construction accident cases. So if you wanna learn the ins and outs of the plaintiff, defense, adjuster, mediation side of handling construction accident injury cases, please tune in. If you wanna be a panelist, please let me know. Love to have some carriers, some defense lawyers and the like. All right, now let's get into wrapping up a case. Um, there will come a time, more likely than not, that a case will resolve by settlement. Realistically, that's how the overwhelming majority of cases resolve is by settlement. Uh, unless they're dismissed on summary judgment, uh, or if you go all the way to trial, uh, the case gets a defense verdict and uh, gets held up on appeal and, and ends that way. Or if you are a plaintiff and you win at trial, you enter and you execute judgment. But realistically uh, and practically along that continuum, even if you win a trial, usually a settlement will occur afterwards to avoid judgments and appeals. Uh, same thing sometimes if you lose a trial, there's appellate issues. So we wanna talk about settling a case, which can happen as we talked about early on pre-suit, if you're doing your job right as a plaintiff's lawyer and a defense lawyer and an insurance claims adjuster, you're working to get the case resolved, the whole litigation. That's what we all want to do, right? We want to get resolution, uh, whatever side of the V that we're on. So it can happen anywhere in the case. Uh, for my colleagues out there who are my adversaries, you know I'm always reaching out for talking settlement. Hey, you want to talk settlement? You want to mediate? You want to arbitrate? You want to do a high-low? You want to talk straight up? What can we do here? Let's can we get this case resolved? What do you need from me? Um, here's what I need from you. And when that time comes for settlement, you need to be prepared. That's uh, my mantra is preparation, preparation, preparation. You need to have your ducks in a row to actually be able to proceed with settling a case. We'll talk about how to do that. And your client needs to be informed on the appropriate parameters that you believe 
uh, are fit for settlement of your case. So as a plaintiff's attorney, you need to make sure that your client uh, is understanding the ranges, the values, where you're coming up with these numbers from and why you're recommending things. If you're on the defense side, the carrier and possibly the, the insured directly, they need to know why you're recommending certain ranges and numbers, what's a good settlement and what's a bad settlement. So I'm gonna talk about how you get to that a little bit. And this is not gonna be a lecture on settling cases because we will have one of those where we'll talk about uh, how, to, how to get cases settled. This is more of like how to wrap it up. But part of that process is making sure that when the time comes as a plaintiff's lawyer and as defense counsel, first of all, that you have authority. You have authority from your client to settle the case and to settle it for a number that you're negotiating, right? Um, so you need to keep that in mind. You cannot settle a case because you think it's a great number to resolve it and then go back to your client and say, good news, I've settled your case. And then your client says, what are you talking about? You settled my case. How much? I'm not happy with that number. Wait a second. What's going on? You need to be prepared to settle it. And the way you do that is by keeping your client informed. That's my other mantra other than preparation is inform our clients. And it starts at the very beginning. I've talked about it at every part of this litigation process, keeping your client informed. And when you get off on the right foot and your client believes that you have their best interests in mind, uh, that you're going to resolve the case not for what's best for you as a lawyer, but what's best for them as the client, and you've explained the process the whole way through, when the time comes to start talking numbers and settlement, they're going to listen to you, okay? Because you've explained things the whole way. And part of that throughout the process has been values of cases, uh, when it's going to be uh, appropriate for settlement. So whether or not you think you could settle a case early or you're going into a mediation or you're about to start a trial or a jury's about to come in, wherever you're at in the litigation process, your client needs to be aware of that and how the posture of your case is affecting settlement and what the range of values are. So what I do and what I recommend all plaintiff's lawyers do, because I can't recommend how to handle it on the defense side, but from the plaintiff's perspective, when clients start asking me what their case is worth, and we talked about that at the part one about getting the case and signing it up, you, you don't know at that point what a case is worth because you're just signing it up. You haven't gotten into the defenses, the injuries, the damages, everything. But when you're at the point where you have a solid handle on that, you know the extent of the injuries, the extent of the insurance coverage, the pros and cons of litigation, uh, the defenses, if motions are pending for summary judgment, if a jury's out, if you're getting ready for trial, whatever posture your case is in at that point, you need to have a frank conversation with your client and tell them what you think the value for settlement is. And what I like to do is I like to give ranges to clients. I like to tell them that I think, let's say, for example, that for your type of injury, um, the full value, meaning if a car ran a light, admitted fault, struck you and caused your injuries, and there was no dispute and they admitted liability, that's what we call full value. And for your case, your age, your injury, the full value is probably somewhere between $100,000 and $300,000, okay? And I'll give them sort of a range of full value. And then if there's liability issues. If it was a he said, she said intersection accident, or if it was a trip and fall, maybe the argument is they weren't paying attention. 
I'll say you're kind of at probably 50% of full value, probably in the, you know, 50 to $150,000 range. And I explain how comparative fault works and affects value because clients don't know that. They say, but I've been injured horribly. Why aren't I getting all this money? I read these things in the papers. So you need to have this ongoing conversation. You talk about ranges. You talk about the fact that they're elderly and that may bring values down because their life expectancy is shorter. You talk about the fact that they're younger, so that may increase values. You really have a good conversation with your client on the plaintiff and the defense end of what the range of values are in this case. And you, of course, explain on the plaintiff side, you're going to try and get at the high end of that. Uh, and on the defense side, you're going to say, I'm going to treat, try and keep these numbers as low as possible. But as long as the clients understand where you're getting your ranges from of values, that when money's being offered, I'll tell my client, listen, it's on the low range, but it's in the range. Um, would I like to get you more? Sure. I certainly, I make more, of course, but for you, it's, it's in the range. Um, do I think you can get higher? Maybe, but you might have to wait a year. If you're willing to wait a year, we can wait, uh, but I can't guarantee anything. So there's lots of things that can be discussed about values, um, but you have to have a frank conversation and explain things because I often run into clients that will think their case is worth much more than they could ever possibly get. How many of you as plaintiff's lawyers have heard the line from your client saying, you just get me in front of a jury. I know I can get more money from that if I go to a jury. We hear that, but I have to explain to my clients the process of verdicts and that just because a jury awards you a million dollars, if your case is real only worth $100,000, I explain to them what sustainable value is and that how appeals can work and numbers could get knocked down, what expenses are. So. We can talk more about this uh, in a future CLE, and I'm happy to speak with any of you one-on-one, -on -one, as I always do. You can schedule Zoom times with me, email me, call me when you're getting to areas of that. But have conversations about value. Explain to your client where you're getting your numbers from. Is it from your experience? Are you doing a jury verdict search, which is a way to search for injuries for different types of clients, different types of cases? You can look for sustainable values online, what the appellate courts are doing. And that's where you sort of get to these ranges, okay? And also if the insurance uh, is limited or there's a lot of insurance in the case, that of course comes into play. But either way, once you're at that point, and if I've had a conversation with my client that the range is 100 to 300, I think in your case, and I need to know from you, we're getting close. I think we're going to get an offer. And then I get an offer. And then if I get an offer up, let's say the offer is 125,000. I call up my client. And I tell them the offer. I say, this is okay. We're, we're in the range that we've discussed. I think there's more. I'm getting signals there's more from my adversary. Um, but I think that anything over, if we can get to 200 or better, I want that authority from you so I can start wheeling and dealing and negotiating. And then I go back and I get the authority and I explain to them why. And then I go back and I negotiate and I try and get a higher number. I'm staying high. Uh, again, this is for more detailed how to negotiate. We can talk about that. But I know then when I have that authority that if I'm getting anything north of 200, that I can drop the hammer. And I can tell my adversary, listen, the number was three, but I'm confident that if you get me, you know, 275, I'm pretty sure I can close the case. Then I can either just settle it if I need to, or I can go back to my client. I have the authority. Same thing on the defense side. You want the authority for the number the number that gets the case settled so you can wrap it up. And when you get to that point, 
where through mediation, arbitration, uh, well, before you get your decision, while the jury's out, once you have authority from your client, then you settle the case and you get to a number. And what you need to do is you need to confirm it with your adversary. If my case and my example then settles for 275,000. I hang up the phone with my adversary. We're done 275. Great working with you. Um, I'm glad we were able to get to a good resolution. Remember, I'm always talking about the camaraderie. You know, your adversary is going to be psyched because maybe they got authority to go up to 300. You got authority to go to 200 or 250. So you can each look good to your clients by settling at 275. Congratulate each other. Glad we can resolve it. You don't have to posture and say, oh, this case was worth more. I've had defense lawyers say to me, ah, oh, can't believe the carrier's authorizing me to give you this much money. I'd go to trial if I could. I mean, come on. When you, when you finish the negotiation, you're done. Then you get it in writing. And writing can be uh, an email. Shoot out a quick email. Hey, just want to confirm this case is settled for 275. Please acknowledge. They write back. We're all good. So you get it in writing is important. Email something or record them if you're on a Zoom uh, or if you're at a mediation, you make sure the agreement is signed and gets sent around to everybody and it's in writing. If you're in a courtroom, you're gonna wanna get, um, get it on the record. Uh, so you quickly have the client come up and you, there's a process for putting things on the record of a settlement um, and then you're good to go. I think now's probably an okay time, Michelle, to uh, do the first survey if you'd like. If you're joining us via podcast, the first attendance verification code for today's course is POD834. That's POD834. All right, back to you, Andrew. Great. Thanks, Michelle. A question that always comes up, uh, so I want to address it now because someone's thinking it, is that's all well and good when you get the authority from your client and you settle, but what if you don't get authority from your Client. What if you've got a difficult client, especially on the plaintiff side, uh, and the client doesn't want to settle? Then what do you do? Uh, now, ultimately, it's the client's decision. Okay, it is the client's decision, no matter what. If the client says settle, you settle. If the client says don't settle, you don't settle. Okay, that's how it works, uh, and that's what you need to be prepared to do. The way that you avoid a situation where you and your client are disagreeing strongly with each other is because you failed to establish that trust from the beginning. You failed to continue to inform your client. And so they're acting irrationally. If they're not listening to you and what you're explaining to them is based on, uh, on your experience and your research and you're giving them the appropriate guidance and advice and they're not following it. Um, then they're being unreasonable. There's nothing worse than an unreasonable client. So what do you do? People say, do I have to try a case if my client doesn't agree? I've got a great offer up and they don't want to settle it. Well, that's a, a big depends. It depends on how close you are to trial. If it's early on, way before you have a trial set to go, then you can move to be discharged. Uh, but you got to decide to do it. You can't hang in there because I've had cases uh, a long time ago. I had one case I can think of where I had a really unreasonable client who became unreasonable. He would, he was, a, I think bipolar, he was very friendly and nice. And then right when we're getting a trial and I get a great offer, uh, this was about 20, 15, 20 years ago. He said, no way. And I was hoping the judge would help me. Uh, we're about, we picked a jury. 
uh, it's a great offer up. And the judge turned to me and said, Mr. Smiley, you know, at this point, if he doesn't want to take it, he doesn't have to go try the case. And um, ultimately, I think we did get that matter resolved without trying it. But if you're not about to get sent out to trial, um, then you move to be relieved. And what I do is when I'm taking on a case, I know sometimes we don't want to have to say no to a potentially good case, but you've got to, you've got to sniff out those difficult clients. And when I have a client that's retaining me and from the outset, how much am I going to get? And I want to get blood and I'm not going to be happy until they go through the mill. I want them to suffer. And when I get clients like that, I, I say, you know what? I just don't think we're the right firm for you. And, um, you need to, you know, you need to, to set it up properly so that hopefully you don't run into a situation where your client's not listening to you. And that's the best advice I can give. And on the other hand, sometimes you think you can get more money, but your client's anxious to settle and they want to settle the case for a lot less than what you reasonably, reasonably believe you can get for them. And when that happens, if the client, you just inform them. Say, listen, I know the offer is $100,000 and I know that can mean a lot to you right now and you need the money. Things are going on in your life. But I really think if you hang in there another six, seven, eight months, we could probably get you closer to $500,000. This is the first offer. I wouldn't jump on it. But if the client says, Mr. Smiley, I don't care. I need the money. I want it. Settle my case. Then you make sure they're informed. You might want to put something in writing, advising them of the upside so they can't come back to you. And then you have to settle the case. Okay. So keep, keep all that in mind. So now you, you've settled the case. Uh, two things that I always focus on when I'm at the point where I'm settling a case is making sure we're all in agreement about who's paying what, if there's multiple defendants or if there's one, who the carrier is, getting it in confirmation. The other is time frame. okay? You want to talk about that up front. From a plaintiff's perspective, there's nothing worse than settling a case. You know, great, you get it in writing. And uh, then they tell you that, oh, yeah, no problem. You know, our carrier pays within 90 days. Like, what? 90 days? What's going on with that? I don't want my, my client to have to wait 90 days. I don't want to have to wait 90 days. Um, the CPLR, it's uh, Section 5003, uh, gives a statutory time limit for when releases are tendered. And that's 21 days pursuant to statute. So that's very reasonable. 21 days is good. Sometimes if a defendant or carrier says, listen, we usually pay within 21 days, but can we put 30 days just to give us an extra week? That's not a problem. I'll do that. I do not like going beyond 30 days, though, for settlement. Um, the city, the transit authority, authority uh, will, by their own interior processes, have uh, 45, 60, 90-day time periods, and it is what it is. Someone just asked me the other day, can I negotiate that for a shorter time period? I said, you can try. You can always ask, but uh, you may or may not get it. Um, so those are, you know, certain companies, carriers. I know sometimes in big cases with MedMal carriers, uh, they have to pull money from different accounts that are not easily accessible. and That takes them longer. So you want to find this out. You want to find out how long payment's going to be. And that's a topic you want to address before releases are signed in tender. It's also a negotiating tactic sometimes. Um, as a plaintiff, I will often say when we're getting close, listen, that number, you know, I'm having a hard time getting authority, but if you tell me you can get payment promptly upon receipt of releases, like within two weeks or a week of when we tender it, that can go a long way. And often it does. I say to my client, listen, you know, if we settle now, this is when you're gonna get paid. 
Um, so you want to find out timeline. You want to make sure you have that locked in and in writing, you know, pursuant to CPLR within 30 days. Okay. Uh, you want to lock that down so you don't run into problems afterwards when you don't get paid. Because when the payment doesn't come in in time, if you've agreed to pursue into the CPLR, then you can enter judgment on that agreement to settle. Okay, there's a process for that. And that's how you get them to pay. And we've had to do that sometimes. We've had to execute judgment. But usually when those letters start flying, hey, we haven't gotten payment, you know, what's going on? We're gonna have to execute judgment against your client. That's who it gets executed against for failure to pay. Um, then things get moving. So you wanna square up the amount and the terms of payment. Then the next step is closing documents, okay? And you wanna find out who's going to generate closing documents, depending on the case, depending on the carrier, depending usually on the law firms involved. It can be a very easy closing process or it can be quite complex. On the easy end, let's say it's an automobile accident with a $25,000 policy and the defense insurance company Geico says, hey, we're tendering the 25 policy. Uh, you ask them if you're working with the adjuster early on, uh, what do you need? Is a general release fine? Uh, many times a general release is fine uh, for a closing document. That's all you need is a general release. I have attached in my materials a general release so you see what that is, feel free to copy it. Oftentimes, the carrier will send you their general release or they will say, we have a release that we'll send to you. And it's usually uh, by general release, meaning vanilla boilerplate covers all the bases, nothing peculiar about it. So you wanna find out what the documents are, who's gonna prepare them. So on the easy side, you have a general release, that's it. It can get a little more complex. Sometimes the carrier will want a hold harmless agreement. Uh, a hold harmless is you as the lawyer uh, holding the defense firm, the carriers, the defendants, harmless from any liens, known or unknown, that pop up. Meaning if out of the blue, a lien gets asserted against them, uh, they can say, hey, you guys have held this harmless. That's fine, you should do that. You wanna be responsible, know what liens are out there. It is your obligation as counsel for an injured party in a settlement to be aware of liens that you are required to pay uh, by law and those you are not and how to handle those and make sure that your client is informed that those liens will come out of your client's share of the recovery uh, and that you're handling those. And that's when you have that conversation of what a hold harmless is and that you're on it as their lawyer, that you're making sure the liens will be resolved. Um, so you can have a hold harmless agreement, which carriers may want that you can prepare. So sometimes a carrier will say, well, what about, we heard about this lien, we say, how about we just give you a hold harmless with the general release? They say, that's great. And we send that. Now, as you move along the continuum of easy settlement documents and more complex, if it's sometimes a, a larger a figure case that you're settling or a multi-party case, then you get into stipulations of settlement that usually the defense firm will want to prepare. Uh, one uh, attorney may take the lead for their carrier. And then it can become a very detailed uh, document that spells out everything. It has hold harmless language in it. It has release language in it, payment terms in it. Uh, everybody signs off on it. And that just gets emailed around and you got to get a lot of signatures going. Um, and so you'll run into those. 
Um, I've shared in my materials a simple hold harmless that will prepare sometimes. The one that uh, I've provided materials is to a carrier, not to a law firm. So it says claimant because we didn't file suit, but they did tender the policy. They did want to hold harmless. Um, so you can craft and prepare that and put it with a caption. Um, again, find out who's preparing the documents. Find out when they're going to be prepared. I, if my adversary says, no, no, we have to prepare them. I say, all right, when are you going to get them to me? need to know this. Please let me know. Uh, I don't want things to get held up because it's not fair for your adversary to take 30 days to get you documents that you then have to get signed. And then you're delayed 30, 45 days before you're tendering the releases. Uh, and then this clock triggers from there for payment. Okay. So you want to stay on it. These are all things that need to be discussed and resolved. Um, when you're talking about holding uh, carriers and other entities harmless, you need to look at your liens, and that's part of being prepared to settle, okay? The worst thing that can happen is you've had this conversation with your client on the plaintiff's end. You've talked about ranges of settlement, but you didn't tell them that they're going to have to pay back $100,000 workers' compensation lien, and you didn't know it. So what happens? You've just confirmed in writing a settlement for $175,000. Then you get a reminder email a few days later, oh, by the way, uh, we represent the comp lien uh, state insurance fund uh, and there's a hundred thousand dollars comp lien. You know, you need our written consent. You know that we need to get paid by statute. Oops. Oops. Big problem. Okay. So when you're doing your homework and you're preparing to settle a case, you need to identify liens that can potentially play a role in settlement. You need to have a conversation with your client. You need to get final lien numbers. So that means if there's a comp lien, reaching out to the comp carrier, finding out what the existing liens are up to date. If Medicare or Medicaid's involved, you need to reach out to them. You need to put them on notice uh, that um, you're representing the client in a case and you wanna know if they have a lien, how much. Um, workers' compensation, Medicaid and Medicare all have statutory liens, which means you cannot blow them off which means you can be obligated as a lawyer if you do blow them off and you have to pay. So you want to reach out and find out about those liens. You want to ask your clients who their insurance is, okay? In New York State, under the general obligations law, private health insurance cannot cert a lien. It's an anti-subrogation law. So the old days of just Oxford reaching out to get money back, they cannot assert that unless it's an ERISA plan. Okay, there are certain types of private health insurance, ERISA plans in particular, that have a statutory right of a lien. So you need to find out if it's an ERISA plan. All right, these are all things you need to find out about, deal with. Some liens can be reduced. You're going to be able to reduce the workers' comp lien. You're going to be able to reduce Medicare and Medicaid. ERISA liens, they play hardball. They're very tough. I strongly recommend if you're sitting here now and saying, uh-oh, I think I have one of these situations. Stay on and speak with Paul and Paul, Paul Isaac and Paul Loudensberger with Precision Lean Resolution Group. They're awesome. They will give you guidance on how to handle a situation. Um, you can retain them if you're in a real difficult or hairy situation. The sooner you reach out to them when you know there's an issue, the better. Um, and they're the go-to. And I have used them. I will continue to use them. They do a great job. Okay, great job. Um, but if it's a simple thing that you can resolve on your own or you have experience, you can't handle things yourself. 
But you want to do all this before because there's few things that I get a pit in my stomach uh, from uh, when it comes to litigating cases, other than I'm psyched I've just settled the case for $500,000 or more or less or whatever it is. I think I have all the leads. Then a week later, before I'm sending out or after I've sent out releases or right before I'm about to send them out, I get notice of a big lien that I didn't know about. What? There's a $300,000 ERISA lien that they didn't notify us about that we've got to deal with now? That's when I get a pit in the stomach. That's when I'm calling Paul and Paul, all right, how do we deal with this? Okay. Not fun stuff. Not fun to have to go back to your client and say, I know we just settled your case, but you're not going to get as much as we thought because we didn't know about this lien. Um, so you want to do all this stuff up front. The other thing we're talking about settling cases, I know I'm backing up a little bit, you know, have your disbursements ready. Go over the expenses with your client. Give them the ultimate breakdown. Explain to them how the process is going to work after you deduct your fees, after you deduct settlements, how you're going to handle liens. And we're going to talk about escrowing liens in your escrow account. Okay. But ultimately, you're going to send documents to your client to settle. And this is what you're going to send to as a plaintiff to the defense or the carrier uh, that's going to activate the payment period. It'll be the official start date of the tender of releases. Um, and it's what you should diary in your calendar and your notes of the date you sent the releases and when they get them, because that's going to start the clock for payment that you've agreed on by statute or otherwise. So your client's going to sign a release. Your client is going to sign a hold harmless agreement, sometimes, not always. Uh, your client should be signing an escrow deposit form. I've given you a copy of our signature bank escrow deposit form. And my bank that we use at our law firm is Signature Bank. And what happens is settlements are made by check uh, and the carrier will issue payment to Jane Doe and Smiley and Smiley LLP as lawyers. Obviously, swap out my firm name for your firm name and the client's name. But that's how you will receive a settlement check. Okay. So as part of the closing process, you need to have authority from your client that when that check arrives, you can endorse the check with your firm name and with your client's name. And most banks will require proof of your authority to endorse that check. So when the check does come in, we go, my firm will go to the bank. We will endorse our name, our client's name on the back. We have an endorsement form. We give it to the bank. They keep it on file. The check goes into our escrow account. We'll talk about what to do with that in a moment. So you need to send out to your client and tell them what they're going to get and explain all of this, inform them. You will be getting a release. You will be getting a hold harmless agreement. Explain what both of those do, that the release means you are done, okay? You cannot come back and settle this case uh, or reopen this case and get more money. You need to know that. Um, you are done once you sign this. You're releasing everybody in exchange for getting paid money, okay? Um, you explain to them what a release is, what the effect is. You explain to them what a hold harmless is. You explain to them what the bank escrow endorsement form is and why you want them to sign that, okay? Um, you send it to them. I like to email all these documents, have them printed out, sign it, and email back to me and put originals in the mail. Some clients can't do that. So you FedEx it to them with a return FedEx mailer, or you send a messenger. Uh, who waits and brings it back or gives a return uh, envelope for them to FedEx it back to you. Either way, 
It's money well spent to make sure that you are securely and promptly getting these very important documents appropriately signed and sent back to you. If the documents need to be notarized, you explain that to the client that they need to be notarized as well. Uh, you can assist them with that if you need to. Once you get these documents back, you keep the bank escrow form for your firm because you don't send that to your adversary. Uh, and you send your adversary a closing letter. And in that closing letter, which I've also given you a sample of in the materials that you can play with and work off of, in that closing letter to defense counsel or the carrier, um, I always include, I confirm the settlement a number, I confirm how it's going to get paid, $500,000 payable to Jane Doe and Smiley and Smiley LLP, make a check payable in that exact way, and put it in quotes, all right? I ask them uh, to, uh, I don't ask them, I enclose the release, I enclose the holds harmless, uh, I give them a W-9 form, which is usually requested, and our tax ID number. And then I ask them to confirm receipt. Uh, you want to make sure you send it to them in a way that you have proof. I usually will email and regular mail. Uh, I always email because you get proof of that. Uh, I will FedEx, sometimes email and FedEx originals. Whatever it is you want proof, you want to record the date that you've tendered all of those documents. Okay. Then you follow up and say, please acknowledge receipt. You have everything. Does it all look good? You don't want to sit back and wait 21 days. And then you're following up for payment. And they say, oh, I never got your documents. Or, oh, um, there was an issue with the holds harmless or whatever it may be. Uh, you want to confirm that your adversaries received the closing documents and that they are in good order and that they're being processed. All right. This way, you know, things are under works. You know the time frame is running and you can tell your client everything's been submitted. Um, we are waiting. In my closing materials, I've given you a lot of these documents to look at. I've also given you some documents that you can ask me questions about, but even more so, you can ask Paul after our Q&A, Paul and Paul from Precision Lean, of how to handle uh, Medicare. That's run through an entity called CMS and you need to send in a closing document when you settle a case with the settlement amount, the amount of the attorney's fees, the net to the client. They will send you letters back uh, saying what their lien is um, and what they will accept uh, in reduction. Uh, you then have to send them a check uh, when the funds come in. So we will talk about that. So what's gonna happen next is that you're gonna get paid hopefully and you're gonna get a check and the check's gonna get come in you're going to make copies of it, uh, deposit it into your IOLA escrow account. Now, let's talk about escrow accounts for a few minutes. Every one of you who handles and processes cases where you receive monies on behalf of clients must have a separate uh, attorney IOLA account, also known as an escrow account, separate from your operating or checking account that your firm uses. And uh, if you're not aware of this, uh, the escrow account, the IOLA account, uh, is you're not allowed to get interest on it. And what happens is, is any interest that that account generates goes automatically into a fund uh, that uh, goes to, I believe, aggrieved uh, uh, clients of lawyers uh, who have done wrong somehow. I'm not sure, but I know it goes to some fund and you don't get the benefit of it and your clients don't. So if you're in a situation where you're supposed to be holding money 
and uh, interest is supposed to be running on the money that you're holding, let's say in a surrogate court proceeding, a wrongful death or infant type proceeding, uh, then you will need to open up a sub account that can be interest bearing. But an escrow account can only, 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 only be used for client funds, settlement funds, okay? Meaning you cannot take from Peter to pay Paul. If you're sitting on a million dollars of settlement monies in your escrow account and your operating account is in the negative and you just need 10 grand because you know a check's coming in in two days, you cannot borrow from your escrow account and put it into your operating account. That will get you disbarred. The biggest things you are going to see when you are looking through and find out about clients, uh, lawyers rather, getting disbarred is because they've messed with their escrow account. Golden rule is you do not, do not, do not take funds from your escrow account and it, unless it is an attorney's fee or reimbursement of disbursements that are authorized through a settlement, okay? No else. You don't move money in. You don't move money out. Do not, do not, do not mess with your escrow account. Um, escrow accounts can be audited. Uh, if uh, someone makes a complaint to the bar association or a disciplinary committee about you, uh, they, can, they have the right to audit your escrow account. And they often will. And they're going to look through it. If they th see things moving back and forth, you can be disbarred. Don't do it, folks. Don't do it. Do not mess with your escrow account. And when you run in, if there's a banking error, then get something from the bank to fix it and to keep on file in the case of any audits, if something's improperly debited or credited. You must, must, must be very careful with your escrow account. So what happens? You get the money in in the settlement. Let's say it's Jane Doe and Smiley and Smiley LLP. We deposit the funds. Usually it'll take three to five business days to clear. You can track it. You can ask the bank, when should these funds be cleared? Um, then what you do is when the money is cleared, that is when you're going to distribute the funds to your client. Um, and you will distribute those funds that are free and clear uh, and do not need to be used to pay off liens. So I quickly saw a question about when do you negotiate liens? How do you pay them off? Um, well, you can try and start negotiating them early. Oftentimes workers' compensation will do that, but Medicaid and Medicare oftentimes will not talk reduction or negotiation until after you've had a settlement. So what you need to tell your client is that, listen, Medicare is uh, asserting a lien. Uh, sorry, my computer's running low. Let me just make sure I'm plugged in here. Okay. Um, what you need to do is advise your client, look, Medicare is asserting a lien of $60,000. Uh, Medicaid's asserting a lien. They will likely reduce that lien, usually by a third, give or take. So you'll probably have to pay back about 40000 but we're not gonna know that until we negotiate with them. We'll try and knock it down as much as possible. We may bring in, because it's a huge lien on a big case, uh, Precision Lien Group, because uh, they can usually knock them down even more. But what we're gonna do is we're gonna hold that $60,000 in escrow. It's gonna stay in our escrow account. We're gonna hold that workers' compensation lien in escrow. Anything that is not yet resolved, you advise your client you're going to hold in escrow, okay? while you negotiate that lien until that lien is finalized. And any balance, if you're holding $60,000 and finally get to pay off the lien for $40,000, you're advising your client that after the lien is paid, they'll be getting another check for $40,000, okay?
And what you do then is you make sure you're informing your client, they understand the process, and you'll see in the sample closing letter in the materials I provided, we indicate that I believe where there's a lien, uh, the amount of it, the amount being held in escrow, and then you tell them this monies uh, that are saved by reduction will be sent to you upon resolution of the lien. And then you keep them informed. You let them know what it is that you finally gotten as far as a reduction. You copy them on letters that you send until finally that's done. Then you send them a letter uh, saying, here's the balance and here's a copy of your lien getting paid off with a copy of the check. So everything's buttoned up and your clients see what's going on. Again, the key is informing them throughout this process so they're not surprised. Uh, so they know how much money they're getting. You explain to them your expenses, what they are. Uh, you give them a list of all your expenses uh, in your closing letter. And they have to be legitimate expenses. They have to be things that you have written checks for, okay? Sometimes there's a gray area and you should err on the side of caution because you could be audited as well. Uh, you're not allowed to throw in your expenses you know, $1,000 for uh, phone calls uh, because that's part of what your fee is. But if you spend $1,000 on medical experts, yes, that's an expense. So you have to give them a breakdown of the expenses. And as I do in the letter, I give them a full breakdown. I close copies of the expenses. There should be nothing uncertain, okay? I get a lot of calls from unhappy plaintiffs saying, my lawyer never told me about this. Uh, my lawyer said I can't get all my money because there are liens. And when I asked them, well, did your lawyer say what the liens are and how much they are? No, he just said there's liens, okay? You need to inform your clients. And if you're in a situation where you think they may not be in straight with you and there may be a lien and they're saying, no, no, I don't have any liens. Uh, I don't think you're going to get anything. Then get something in writing from them so that you're not on the hook uh, when the time comes if you, a lien shows up later on. It's a matter of communication. We have to communicate as attorneys with our clients. And when there's any doubt or any concern, you've got to cover yourself with a written letter, okay? Uh, to the client, acknowledging them to sign off on things. Oftentimes clients will say, can you give my settlement check to my husband? Or he doesn't need to be on the settlement check, even though he was a plaintiff, just make it out to me. If you run into situations like that, tell them to put it in writing to you in an email. Again, make sure you're covered. So if any questions come up, you have that to, to show why uh, the check went to one plaintiff, maybe not the husband and wife separately in name. Uh, just make sure that um, you have that communication going. It's really important, especially when you're wrapping up cases. You don't want to be accused of stealing money from your client or taking more money. If you've got everything buttoned up, then if some client goes off the rails later on, oh, Andrew Smiley, he stole money from me. He told me my case was settled for $300,000 and I'd get $100,000 and I only got $25,000. Then I'll pull up the, the file. I'll look, I'll see the breakdown and I'll see the liens. I'll see everything and it's all there. So it's really important that you button all of that up, okay? Now, once the money clears escrow, meaning you've checked your bank with your bank, you've looked online with your online banking and all the funds are available, the check has cleared, that's why you wait before distributing anything. You don't give advances to your client. You wait until the money is clear because not every check clears. We've had problems over my 26-year career. I've seen some banks not clear, uh, some checks not clear, okay? Doesn't happen often, but you wait. Once it's clear and you're ready to distribute the money to your client, 
that is when you can deduct your attorney's fees and your expenses, and you can transfer them from your escrow account to your operating account. You don't transfer from your escrow account to your personal uh, account because you say, well, I'm a solo lawyer, it's all the same. No, everything goes through your firm operating account, and then you can distribute to yourself as a draw or wherever you want it to go. Your operating account, you can control. Your escrow, you need to be able to explain if the authorities show up at the door, so to speak, what monies are going in and where they're going out. So you should not be taking monies until the monies are clear and you're in a position to pay a co-counsel, your client their share and everything else. You can take your fees even while you're negotiating liens. That's okay because liens aren't coming out of your share. So that's not a problem, okay? Now, once that's all done, you need to send a closing letter to the client, tell them that the check is in the mail. What I like to do is let my clients know the money's gonna be clear in five days. Um, how do you wanna receive it? Do you want me to mail you a check? Do you want me to FedEx you a check? Would you like me to wire the funds? Um, and if they want to wire the funds, you tell them what wire information you need. You make sure to confirm it verbally by phone with them. Uh, in big cases, I will put them on a recorded line or Zoom. Say, I want to record you saying, I want it wired and this is the account. Because you never want a problem where someone comes back to you and says, why did you wire my million dollar settlement proceeds to this account number? I didn't email that to you. That's not my email address. I didn't speak to you. All right. You need to button things up. And so I think in the closing letter, it may have confirmed today, we wired you the sum. So you're either confirming the wire or you're confirming a check is enclosed um, with the breakdown. You get it all to your client. You continue to follow up with liens, send them copies of all of that and any remaining amounts. After you've done all of that, the final thing, once you've dispersed all of the monies, is by filing the um, Office of Court Administration closing statement. Uh, the good news is you can do that online now. Uh, you can file retainer statements. That's what opens the case and gives you the number. And this is, we talked about that at the beginning, uh, part one. Part two, uh, we talked about wrapping this all up. That's the final item, folks. That is alerting the court system. We are done. You're giving them the fees, the expenses. You're telling them what the, uh, you're attaching your expenses. I like to do the same list you give to your clients. Uh, talk about the date you received monies, the date uh, who paid it, the date you sent payment to the client. Um, I think on the one we gave you, there's some different numbers. I think we sort of pulled something together just as a sample. So the numbers should all add up when you're doing it. But that gives you the form. The forms are online as well. But you need to file an OCA closing statement. Uh, they will ask if the case was settled by, um, uh, by like a retainer or by court. By court would be if you have a wrongful death compromise order. If you have a surrogate court's order, you can attach that order. Uh, we didn't talk about those orders, but um, if it's a death case, you do not have full letters of administration or there's children involved, you're going to need a wrongful death compromise order that you can get from the surrogate's court. Uh, or if you have a federal court judge or a Supreme Court judge who's willing, they have the uh, authority and jurisdiction, they can sign off on a wrongful death compromise order. Uh, you also, if it's an infant case, anybody under the age of 18, you have to get an infant compromise order. So if you get a case where it's someone under the age of 18 and you settle it and settle for the policy limits, you're still gonna need to uh, file for an infant compromise order, purchase an index number and get that going. 
Uh, you cannot send releases out without uh, court approval and authority allowing you to do that. Um, we will process wrongful death compromise orders and infant compromise orders in-house. They're a little more complex. We have some uh, specialists we work with who are fantastic. We know the surrogate court system well, and they can, they can assist you with those also. So once you get the, uh, that all done, you file your OCA retainer statement. If you have a referring attorney, um, as you all know, we get referrals. We'd love to get your referrals. If we have a referring attorney on a case, they're getting a fee that goes into, you're gonna file a retainer statement for them at the start of the case. And that goes into the closing statement as well, making sure everything's above board. You put how much everyone's getting, you file it, and it's a wrap when you're done with the case. And it's a wrap uh, for the series. Uh, part seven is now officially come to an end. Um, the show will hop on in a moment and tell you that uh, you'll have your credits, but you can stay on for the Q&A, which I hope you do. Uh, if this is if you're listening to this via podcast and you're not on live, uh, stay on. We have more to talk about. Uh, if you're not listening to the podcast, uh, then please do so. Part one through part seven are all live with the CLE on demand, part one through six, but seven will go live next week. Uh, they're also part of the Mentor ESQ podcast. You can listen to audio wherever you get your podcast. It's free. You can also watch these videos online and all these materials are available. The written materials for all of part one through seven are now available uh, online at the Mentor ESQ. You can download it uh, and they're also available uh, with the Academy. So make sure you check that out. Okay, Michelle, uh, it's yours. And uh, thank you for joining me. You know, part one through seven, I'll say it again after the Q&A, but it's been awesome. We're going to have an awesome, awesome series on trial skills. It's really fun stuff. Uh, I love talking about trial skills. So hopefully you'll, you'll register soon and, uh, and we'll see each other uh, after Labor Day. If you're joining us via podcast, the second attendance verification code for today's course is POD941. Again, that's POD941. So we're going to get into the Q&A now. Um, there's a couple lean questions that I'm going to leave for uh, Paul and Paul. Uh, but I'm going to try and get through as many as I can of these questions, which I thank you all for. Feel free to keep putting them in. Um, and the first question that I want to address is someone looking to be relieved as counsel uh, from handling uh, being forced to go to trial. We spoke about that when the policy limit uh, has been tendered. Again, it is going to depend on, um, on where you're at in the process. Definitely a disagreement on whether to settle the case or not is enough to be relieved as counsel. I don't know many judges that are going to make you stay on. You can't be an indentured servant. Um, so you don't have to represent someone in your retainer agreement. should also say that either party can terminate the agreement at any time. Um, so as long as you're not leaving your client high and dry and they have adequate time to get new counsel, you should be able to be relieved. Now, the side note, there's a misconception that just because you have an offer on the table, even if it's a policy offer, even if it's in writing, when you move to be relieved that you're entitled to your fee on that amount. That is not true. Um, so keep that in mind uh, because uh, just because you get a policy up doesn't mean you're entitled to a percentage of fee uh, that you think you're getting just on an offer on the table. And there's a lot of case law out there on that. So keep an eye out for that. Um, I thank you, uh, Stephen Lane, uh, who's one of our members of our community out there. As always, uh, I don't know everything. And I love it when people chime in who know more than me to assist us. We all know lots about different things. Uh, and Stephen's telling me in the chat that uh, you can't 
require a plaintiff's lawyer to sign a hold harmless agreement. And he's saying even more so that it's unethical for defense counsel to request an attorney to sign a hold harmless agreement. Now, um, now in practice, sometimes you may, uh, you may not be able to get a case settled if they say, listen, until we get X, Y, and Z from this company, we're just not going to pay up and settle the case. And that may take six, seven, eight, nine months or until they get something that they're waiting on. But if you as a plaintiff's lawyer are not concerned about it, you say, look, our firm will hold you harmless too. You can voluntarily do that to get things moving. But it's great to know that it's apparently unethical uh, if you can find out uh, if that's on case law or statute and either drop that in the chat or, chat or share it with Michelle so we can share that information with other lawyers. That would be fantastic. Thank you. Um, so there's a, another question about what liens attached to recovery and being paid. I'm going to leave that to Paul and Paul. Um, <laughs> good question from Mr. Velez here about um, Uber's requesting they have a 15 page release and confidentiality clause. Do I agree or disagree? Do I ask for more money for confidentiality? So ultimately, this is what it comes down to in confidentiality agreements. Whether your client's willing to settle the case or not, and how badly you want to settle the case. Um, you know, I've had some big cases that I didn't want to sign confidentiality agreements on because I wanted to publish them. I wanted to put them in the jury verdict reporter. Uh, I wanted to put them on my website. Uh, I wanted to be able to lecture about them and talk about them because they were big ticket items that had interesting issues and they were value, valuable uh, to share. Um, but the defense and the carriers insist on confidentiality. So a couple of things. First, that's something you want to bring up up front. If it's not in the releases, uh, and you get paid and it comes up afterwards, too bad, okay? Uh, it's on them. It's on your adversary who wants the confidentiality or the plaintiff, if you want uh, confidentiality, your client to address that early on and put it in writing or it doesn't matter. Um, you can ask to pay, ask the carrier, listen, if you want this confidential, you're going to have to pay more. And they can come back and say, I'm not paying more. If you want to settle this case, you need to sign a confidentiality. Usually, it comes out that you're going to sign off on that confidentiality agreement. Okay. It's usually how it plays out because all things otherwise, you're going to want to, everyone wants to get their case resolved. And are you going to hold it up over the fact that um, you want to blab about it? Uh, there are certain ways that you could acknowledge it. You could put on websites, set, you know, without giving names or specifics or numbers, you know, uh, settled uh, confidential case uh, for, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. I've had cases where uh, I had a big construction accident case uh, settled. It was for a very uh, substantial sum. And I wanted to be able to put it in the jury verdict reporter because as we know, people search those within our industry, but I wasn't going to the press or the news with it. I wasn't blabbing about it, but I thought it'd be important to have it in the jury verdict reporter for searchable databases that they have. So I worked it out with my carrot, with my adversary in that case. I said, how about we say no publicity, except we may uh, report it to the jury verdict reporter. Uh, and I explained why. And my adversary was cool with it and explained it to the carrier because it depends why people want confidentiality. Sometimes they just don't want to see their name, their words, you're going to put it all on the cover of the New York Post uh, or something. And they're like, oh, the jury verdict reporter, I could care less about that. Yeah, we have no problem. So have a discussion uh, and, uh, and see if you can work something out. And that's where it comes to, okay? Um, so someone's asking about if you get an infant compromise order, 
does the carrier also get a release and step of discontinuance? The answer is yes. So what will happen is the infant compromise order will authorize the, usually it's the guardian or parent and natural guardian, the parent will say, you know, Jane Doe is parent and natural guardian of the infant S period S because you don't file stuff with names of infants, you put initials. To, author, to sign releases and any other documents that are required to consummate the settlement. That's language that you need to be putting into uh, the document, uh, the proposed wrongful comp uh, infant compromise order that's being submitted to the judge. If you're doing a structured annuity, if it's a substantial sum and you're working with Paul's company or another company and you're doing a structured settlement, then they'll give you the language that because that has to go into the compromise order. Just ask them to give you language to insert uh, and they'll be happy to help you with adding that language. But yes, so that order allows the settlement of the case. Then you take that order with all the documents you need to sign, and then you send that over to uh, the defense uh, or their perhaps their structured settlement rep. Uh, but yes, it's a combination of things. That in and of itself, same with the wrongful death compromise order. That's in and of itself not what settles the case. It's what gives somebody the authority to sign the documents to settle the case. Hey, the State Liquidation Bureau, do they have liens? Are they involved? Are you settling the case with them? They have their own rules as far as payment, and uh, sometimes it can take a long time. We've got a couple of those, and it's not fun. That could be when a, a, a defense insurance company goes into bankruptcy. The only way to get the case settled, it goes through the State Liquidation Bureau, so you're settling with them. They have their own rules, their own documents, their own time periods. So. You'll learn about that, I'm sure, if you haven't yet gone through that. Um, someone's asking me to go over how high lows work, high low splits. Um, I'm not sure what the specific question is, um, but generally a high low is when you agree to arbitrate a case and you're setting parameters. I love high lows. I'm always pushing to get those, to get cases resolved. If we're not going to mediate it. Uh, we ask for to arbitrate it. And what you do is you go to NAM or JAMS or whoever you want to hire um, and you agree to let them arbitrate the case, but they don't know the parameters. And you and your adversary agree that, let's say the low will be 100,000, the high is going to be 600,000. But the arbitrators that you agree and you can agree on which arbitrator you want to work with, let's say Judge Skelos, who just uh, gave the commercial for NAM, uh, we say, all right. We've agreed on these parameters. Uh, we're going to let Judge Skelos arbitrate it. You get into the process of how you're going to arbitrate that. That's another story uh, as far as specifically how you want to set up the parameters, what to do. But ultimately, if it's a high-low, you agree to that in writing. Then if Judge Skelos, upon receipt of everything, the hearing and whatever else you agree to produce or uh, promote through him, um, he comes back. If it's a number between 100 and 600, you're agreed, you're done. It comes back with 400, the case is settled, 400,000, then you send out releases and all the closing documents. If the number is less than 100, if it's a defense verdict or 50,000, you get 100,000. Releases get sent out based on that. If it comes in with more than 600,000, if the award's a million dollars, you've capped it at 600. So what you're doing is you're negotiating the high and lows, and then you see where the chips fall, but it brings resolution to a case. That's why I love it. I know if I'm doing a high-low arbitration, at the end of the day, whatever that decision is, the case is settled. 
And uh, oftentimes you're going to feel much better instead of going to a jury, going to an arbitrator that both sides or all sides agree on, you're going to get a fair shake in working on the parameters. I really, really encourage that. I like doing that. Um, someone's asking me what percentage of my practice do we have liens involved? Is it a rarity? Is it around 30, 40, 50% of my cases? I'd say it's probably 50% or more that we have liens. Any work-related third-party case, you're gonna have a comp lien. Um, auto cases, you won't have liens up to $50,000 because no fault, but any treatment above $50,000 or beyond uh, any excess no fault could trigger a lien. Um, Medicaid, you're gonna see tons of liens in Medicaid and Medicare. So there's lots of liens that show up. So you really need to be careful, folks. Um, really careful, unless it's a auto case that's settling for the policy limit for 25,000 and the treatment wasn't extensive and you're pretty comfortable it's less than 50,000, there's always the possibility of a lien. So be careful of that. Um, and you, you can find out about a lien right off the bat. That's a question, when do you inquire? Um, you need to ask your client at the start of the case, are you a Medicaid recipient? How are you paying for this treatment? Um, you, do you get Medicare? Are you over 65 years old? Do you get Medicare? Are you on disability? Do you get Medicare? Um, the red flag should be someone who you know who may be uh, indigent or unemployed, uh, someone who you know is elderly. That's going to trigger Medicaid, Medicare. You just send out letters of representation and asking if they have a lien. Uh, that's what you want to get going. You want to start doing your homework because at the end, these can be problems if you haven't prepared in advance for handling the lien. Yes, send out letters to CMS, um, asking them if they're asserting lien, asking them to send you a list of payments, uh, explanation or EOB, explanation of benefits. I didn't attach it in the letter for my case because it would have been privacy issues, but when they send you uh, the lien that they're asserting, Medicaid or Medicare, automatically they usually do it. If not, you need to ask. They'll give you a whole printout. You want to look at that printout and make sure it's connected to uh, the injury your client sustained in this case. Maybe uh, you're representing your uh, plaintiffs, representing uh, uh, an injured party plaintiff's counsel for a case where they injured their leg. And you look through the list and you see treatment payment from a gynecological visit. And you're like, oh, that wasn't part of this case. And you have them remove it. You send it back. You mark it up. You send them a letter. You tell them to remove it. And usually they'll remove it and send you back a revised lien. Do that with all lien holders, okay? Um, okay, a couple more questions here. So there's a question about you know agreeing to referral fees and how much and and you know that 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 is within the scope here and it's a good question. So generally, I'll tell you what my firm does. Um, if you refer a case to my firm and it's a negligence case. Um, if we're going to get one third of the fee, um, you generally will receive one third of the fee. Um, the client has to be aware of the fee sharing. It should be in writing the agreement. There should be sharing of work in the fees and keeping track of it and retainer statements filed. Um, speak with Steve Ross, who lectures on ethics, but the proper way to do it is to make sure it's all buttoned up and documented. Uh, and generally, we will uh, share one third of our one third net fees. Okay. If it's a medical malpractice case, as a plaintiff's lawyer, if you take on a medical malpractice case, it is a sliding scale. 30% of the first 250,000 recovered, 20%, uh, 25% of the next 250,000, uh, 20% of the next 500,000. So 
um, the number, the scale, the fees go down based on the income as it goes up to any recovery amounts above 1.25 million is 10% of money earned above that is the fee. So what we as a practice do is we uh, tell referring attorneys that they would ride the scale with us. Uh, get 30 of our 30, 25 of our 20, five, 10 and 10 and, and do it that way. Uh, and generally they accept it. I don't think it's fair uh, for a referring attorney to ask for to get a larger percentage than what we're getting. Uh, I don't think it's fair for them to ask for more than riding the scale uh, because as it is, uh, medical malpractice cases are very difficult and very expensive to handle. Um, and because uh, tort reform laws uh, reduce the fees that lawyers like myself that handle these cases get, they thought it would uh, reduce your ability to take on cases and that we wouldn't be inclined to sue hospitals or physicians for malpractice anymore if we weren't getting a full third. It didn't reduce it, but what it does is it reduces our fees unfairly. So to give even more, a bigger reduction to referring a lawyer, unless they're really, really like, you know, co-counsel on the case, I will tell uh, colleagues that it's not fair. And if they say, well, then we're going somewhere else, you know, then I probably don't want to be doing business with that lawyer. Uh, you have to make those decisions. Again, these are decisions we make as lawyers, uh, as law firms of, is this a client we want? Is this a lawyer we want to take? You know, if this is what they're going to be like, do we want to work with them on a referral basis? So, you know, people will handle things differently. I just tell you my practice and I'm, I'm satisfied with my practice. Um, so what happens if a plaintiff agrees and then reneges and switches attorneys? So once the uh, release is signed, they're locked into it. You know, the case is settled. Uh, if they give me authority and I relay that to my adversary, and my adversary is preparing closing documents, and then uh, I go to give them to my client, they say, yeah, you know, Andrew, I know we had long talks, and uh, thanks for all the work you've done on my case, and I know I, you told me that this was the bottom line, and I should take 300000 and I know I authorized you to, but I just spoke to another lawyer, and he told me he can do better, and he said not to settle it, and that uh, I should uh, discharge you and retain the other lawyer. So, sorry. The retainer agreement says I can discharge you. I'm discharging you. So I say, wow, that's pretty messed up. I thought we had a good relationship. We had a lot of talks. I spent a lot of time and money. But you can go ahead and discharge me, and I have a lien on my fee. And I call my adversary, and I tell him what just happened. And I say, it's pretty bad. Um, and he says to me, or she says, well, you know, their new lawyer is going to have a rude awakening when we tell them that um, we're not going to give them another dime. Um, and we put it on the record, and they're going to have to deal with it. But that's how you handle that type of situation. Okay, um, a lot of questions about liens and CMS, which I knew there would be. I have a lot of questions about it. There's lots of issues that come up and that's why I'm so glad you have Paul and Paul here and I encourage you to stay on. I'm gonna get off at 2.30 and let them get on and uh, answer all these questions. Uh, so I'm gonna leave it to them. Um, okay. Hey, interesting. Um, Mike Mahari, how you doing, Mike? Thank you for putting that in. He's one of my adversaries. He's defense counsel who I've resolved cases with. Good lawyer, good attorney. Uh, he's an example of how I can have adversaries that I continue to get along with and get cases resolved with. Uh, and he's saying in the chat that there could be tax consequences 
of a client who gets money for a confidentiality agreement. Google it. Ask Dennis Rodman. Love it. Uh, Dennis Rodman, if you don't know who he is, means you're probably young, really young, and not a basketball fan. So look that up. That's a great point. Thanks, uh, Michael, for pointing that out. Um, all right, lean question, lean question, lean question, lean question. I'm scrolling through all these in the Q&A. Uh, guys, Paul, Paul, you're going to need to be on here um, longer than, uh, than probably a half an hour to handle these. But here's a lean question I will handle. What do you do if the lean's in excess of the policy limit? Then what you do is you reach out to the lien holder, you explain the situation, you uh, get them confirmation of the lien amount, affidavits of no excess, say, listen, I'm not going to sign the retainer until uh, the, the release, rather. We can't settle this case, but if you want to get something, we all have to work it out. So the old days, we did something called a third, a third, a third, which still goes around sometimes where lawyer gets a third, lien holder gets a third, client gets a third. Um, and that's it. You don't get additional expenses, things like that. You try and sort it out. Uh, but I'll leave it to the lien specialist to talk about that. Does a client have to approve fee sharing? Technically, I believe the answer is yes. A uh, client needs to uh, know and consent to the fact that you're sharing your fee. Uh, that's what I believe. I am not 100% sure of that. But it is good practice to let your client know that uh, there's a lawyer sharing the fee, especially since it's usually that lawyer who referred that client to you. So what I will often say to my client is that, listen, Mike Mahari referred you to me. He's a defense lawyer. He doesn't do plaintiff's work, but um, I'm sharing the fee uh, with him. Uh, he's going to keep an eye on things uh, and help facilitate my work with you uh, and help answer questions. And uh, he's going to get a fee for that. But you're going to get two lawyers. You're going to be able to reach out to him with questions. Um, you have me working on the case. I share my fee with him. It doesn't come out of your share at all. So it's sort of a two for one, but I just want to let you know that, that I'm making less, but I'm still going to do uh, all the work I normally would, and you're going to be the beneficiary of it. So there's ways you can explain it to your client where they realize you're working for less, but working hard, and they're getting the benefit of two lawyers for the price of one. So I'd recommend that you do that uh, unless you think that would be some type of problem. Um, how does a prior attorney protect uh, a referral fee if you get discharged? Um, again, ultimately, your agreement with a referring attorney is going to be your agreement. And it's on the net of attorney's fees that you guys receive. So smiley and smiley, if, uh, if I get discharged from a case uh, and someone settles that case, and ultimately it's up to me to negotiate my firm's fee, and uh, if I get less, uh, then um, my referring attorney will get less because uh, that's our agreement will reflect the percentages. Uh, but an attorney refers a case and is working on the case, then you need to find out, hey, how come they discharged me? How come you didn't do your job? You referred them. Uh, why didn't you speak with them or monitor the case? Were you involved? Or if you're having problems with a client, there's nothing wrong with reaching out to the referring attorney if you need a little help and say, listen, this client's being really unrealistic. Can you join in on a Zoom with us or a meeting? You know, I'm trying to explain what's going on. Maybe they'll listen to you. You're, you're a referring attorney. Here's where you can earn your fee on this case. Okay. So that's how it handled that. All right. So I'm going to end on this question. It's a nice one, unless another one comes up. 
Um, and the question is from larger settlements, do clients meet you at the bank for depositing checks from carriers? I've never had that happen. Um, again, it's a matter of uh, informing my client, explaining the process to them. I've had very large checks come to me, fortunately, over the years and never had to have a client meet me at the bank. I've had wires come into my escrow account, never had to have a client meet me at a bank. So for a wire, um, you don't need an endorsement. You just ask them to wire it to your escrow account. Um, and for big check, the big check's coming in, um, then you need them to sign an endorsement to approve it in advance. If they are nervous, if they don't trust you, which would be unfortunate, if, you're, if they're skeptical, maybe you're a solo lawyer and you got a big, big uh, settlement that is a surprise to you and to your uh, client, but you did it and you brought one home, uh, but you've never done it before and they're a little worried, hey, you know, I don't know much about this lawyer. They just got a huge settlement for me. I think I'd feel a little more comfortable uh, meeting them and depositing the check and actually seeing it and signing it in person than let them meet you at the bank. What's the big deal? Uh, but generally that doesn't happen. Look, ultimately you want the client to feel comfortable. And if you start pushing back on the fact that you don't need to meet me at the bank, what, you don't trust me? You know, I wouldn't say that. I'd say, listen, you don't need to meet me at the bank. Um, you know, I have to sign it. My name's on it. It's got to get, you know, it's got to, I, I need your authorization to sign your name or I can't deposit it. So if you don't want to give me authorization, you don't have to, and you'd rather meet me at the bank. I want you to feel comfortable. Again, it's a great note to end on, to end this Q&A and to end this series on, I believe, because it goes with my mantra, inform your clients, folks, from beginning to end, keep them in the loop, let them know to reach out to you and things will end up just fine because you're going to get thrown curveballs. There's going to be problems. You may have to go to your client and say, listen, we had an issue. Uh, but if you've been explaining things to them all along, then it's going to work out okay. You're going to do just fine. On that note, I want to thank you all very much for attending uh, part seven uh, of this CLE series. I want to thank you for joining me. Seven months go fast. Too bad we can't all get our cases brought in and resolved in seven months like this. Like we resolved the series, but we've gone from beginning through the process to end. I can't wait to join, uh, have you join me uh, for uh, in the fall uh, for my uh, trial skills series. And if you're listening to this on a podcast, um, please share it with your friends, like it, continue to listen. And I thank you for that. Give me a good rating on Google. Uh, if you haven't listened to my podcast yet, please do so. Uh, go to the Mentor ESQ to find it. I interview lots of interesting people. Uh, episode, season two, episode two. And Michelle is just, you know, she's up there. So there's CLEs. You can get credit for CLEs, other trial skills. There's interviews. There's the roundtable coming up. I hope you'll join me on uh, and just stay involved in the community. Uh, and there's eBooks. Uh, check out the eBooks section. Basically, uh, each one of these parts we put into a practice manual that you can download in a PDF. And all I ask that you do, I don't charge for it. I ask that you make a contribution to the Water Project, which helps bring clean water uh, to young people uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa, where they literally have to walk for miles and bring jerry cans of water to their schools to have laboratories. And uh, if we can help them out, I'd love to do that. So please join me on that mission. And with that, I thank you all. Michelle, Paul, and Paul, take it away. Be well, folks. Have a great summer.
Thank you.